You are listening to Bitcoin, Blockchain and the Technologies of Our Future with Naomi Brockwell. Data brokers are all around us. They're like invisible digital pack rats, silently harvesting every piece of data about us that they can find. From your driver's license information to medical records, that information is collected and then sold online, and it is 100% legal. Data brokers make huge amounts of money selling this data to all kinds of clients, industries, advertisers, other data brokers. But there's one client of this data that's not often talked about. It turns out the federal government is buying your data from data brokers. Yep. In our previous video in this data broker series, we explored how the US, for example, technically has constitutional protections that stop the government doing warrantless searches of their citizens. But they bypass these checks and balances by simply buying data about everyone using taxpayer money. It's pretty problematic. When we superpower government's ability to peer into our lives, we shift the balance of power very far away from the individual. It's not just an issue in the United States. Data brokers are everywhere. What is Russia and China and Iran doing with that data to attack our citizens? It's time that we interrupt this monster of a digital apparatus. Governments outsourcing data collection to data brokers threatens civil liberties. But it's also dangerous for another big reason. The information provided by data brokers isn't always correct. Yet it's been known to be used in law enforcement investigations taken at face value without being independently verified. It changed my complete outlook on how the justice system works in this country. Ghost Exodus is a researcher and hacker whose life took a dramatic turn because of such inaccurate information provided by data brokers. It did change my life. We're going to dive into his story. But let's first start with a quick recap of our last video where we explained what data brokers are. They're businesses that collect huge amounts of data about us by harvesting all the digital breadcrumbs that we leave behind us in our daily activities. Your social graph of friends, family, work colleagues, organizations, affiliations, every address you've ever had, all the people who have ever been connected with those addresses, your jobs, likes, interests, political affiliations, all vehicles you've ever owned, whether you've ever had a boat or a firearm, intricate details of your financial activity. Oh, great Scott. The list goes on. By scraping social media, using trackers, purchasing information and joining the dots using AI, they end up with a treasure trove filled with all kinds of data points about your life. Analyzing that data is going to require more and more automation and AI can bring that degree of automation. All of this data is compiled into searchable databases and access to these databases is sold to others, providing them with an intensely detailed picture of who you are. But although these databases do reveal untold truths about us, not everything in them is correct. Think about when you've looked for yourself in one of these people search sites. There's usually a random address or phone number that's been tied to you that's not actually yours. For anyone who has any rudimentary knowledge in reverse phone lookups, you will find that they're very largely inaccurate and you have to use a variety of different tools and resources to try to get current information. Let's take the search tool Accurant from the behemoth data broker called LexisNexis Risk Solutions, which has over 84 billion public records for 276 million people. What do you think the chances are that at least one of those records or data points is incorrect? 
pretty high. This database uses a lot of data scraping techniques and basically compiles a comprehensive report which may or may not be accurate. And they're the first to acknowledge this. They say people should independently verify any information found in the database before any action is taken based on results. What happens if it isn't independently verified? Well, if incorrect information is sold to advertisers, they might try to sell you blue shoes instead of red shoes. So the stakes aren't so high. But as we mentioned, this data is also used by law enforcement. Accurant, for example, has partnerships with thousands of government and law enforcement agencies in the US and sells them millions of reports each year. This data is used as evidence to bring charges against people. You literally have to fact check the data points to make sure that the current and are accurate. And that is something that you expect in a criminal proceeding. But that vetting doesn't always take place, as Ghost experienced firsthand. In 2009, he was arrested and charged with two counts of transmitting a malicious code. If you want to know more about that, you should check out episode 70 of the awesome Darknet Diaries podcast. It's a gripping story. But for now, we're just focused on what happened pre-trial. Before Ghost's trial began, there was a bond hearing, which determined whether he would be allowed to go home until the trial, where he'd have access to the resources needed to put together his defense, or whether he'd be denied bail and locked up before being found guilty of anything. At this bond hearing, the assistant US attorney told the judge that, according to their background check that they did on me, that I had used multiple fraudulent names under my social security card. They accused him of owning a fake ID kit and said that because of this and all his fraudulent names, he's a flight risk and should be denied bail. But the problem is, Ghost says none of this was true. Where is she getting this information from? I've never used my name in a fraudulent way at any time. He has had multiple real names though. I was born as Jesse Will McGraw. I was adopted as Howard Daniel Burton. And then I changed my name to Jesse William McGraw when I became an adult. Having different legal names throughout his life is a far cry from fraudulently using different names under his social security card though. So Ghost's defense asked the prosecution for evidence to support their claim. What the prosecutor did was send us a report which came from the Accurate for Law Enforcement database. And Ghost saw a whole bunch of names attached to his record that he'd never used in his life. There were combinations of my name, of my current legal name, my adopted name, and my mother's name all combined into variations. The database had incorrectly muddled all these names together and flagged them as being attached to his social security number. It seems like a trivial error, but for Ghost, it was life altering. The goal in the prosecution's argument was to convince the magistrate that because I had fraudulently used variations of my name under my social security number, I was a flight risk. He said it became a convincing factor that influenced the magistrate judge to deny him bond. I didn't really have an opportunity to defend myself during any time during this proceeding. Ghost says there were serious repercussions for him as a result. It meant that I was not able to go home to my family. I could not raise my child who was 13 months old. I wasn't able to go home to my wife or to my job. And I was stuck in jail trying to mount a, an adequate 
you know, defense with limited resources because I was cut off from the world. It caused severe damage. He didn't have the resources needed to adequately prepare his case, all because of incorrect data that was never actually verified before being presented in court. And his story got crazier from there if you want to learn more. But Ghost is just one example of someone harmed by inaccurate information collected by data brokers. It begs the question, if it happened to one person, who else is it happening to? Think about how high the stakes are in a criminal investigation. If law enforcement are using inaccurate information in a law enforcement database, it's going to lead to, to catastrophic consequences for the person who is being misrepresented in court. And unfortunately, incentives aren't always aligned to encourage thorough vetting of information. Junk data can be damaging in all kinds of other ways too. The reports of this kind of detailed information can sometimes be harmful to a person's reputation, emotional well-being, or physical safety. Consumer attorney Michael Rapp, whose firm has litigated dozens of cases against LexisNexis and companies like it for more than a decade, says that people can have their reputations hurt by companies they never even heard of and often don't know until the damage is done. Megan Kushik, a research associate at the Brennan Center for Justice, had the opportunity to run a search for her name in 2014. Not only did she find a huge amount of data about herself in the database, but she said that surprisingly much of the information was also inaccurate. For example, Accurant had listed someone named Florinda as associated with her social security number, though they assured her that this doesn't usually indicate fraud. Accurant also stated that what they showed Megan wasn't comprehensive, meaning that there could be a whole bunch of other information about her in there that they didn't show her. Indeed, most people will never even get the chance to see any of the information that data brokers have about them, even in a limited capacity. Megan's Accurant report also reiterated that they don't verify data, and importantly, they said that it's not possible for her to change incorrect data. It's left to data mining giants like LexisNexis to decide whether or not they want to amend or clean up the junk data that is retained in these reports. And they don't seem to ever do this cleaning. It would be somewhat of a lost cause because new data is constantly being ingested from a variety of sources that may themselves be inaccurate. So bad information is probably repopulated every time new data is scraped. Data brokers are feeding off each other and the digital trail that we leave behind us like an endless game of whack-a-mole. So what can we do? Well, some people argue for better privacy protection laws. For example, California California introduced the California Consumer Privacy Act, which gives residents the right to request to delete certain personal information and to request to not have their personal information sold. The privacy laws in California should be implemented in every state. But California's laws are far from perfect. For example, there is nothing stopping data brokers collecting that information in the first place. Also, as long as governments are reliant on data brokers to collect information on their behalf, it's unclear whether such laws are even effective. The situation is dire, but we're not at all powerless. We can limit the amount of data able to be collected about us in the first place by making smarter choices about our online activities. Opt for an email provider who can't read out email. Opt for end-to-end -end encrypted messaging instead of SMS or Facebook Messenger. Use a browser with built-in privacy protection protections that limit tracking, hide DNS requests from our internet service provider who is selling that data by either encrypting our DNS request using a service like Quad9 or making sure we always use a VPN.
can. Use cash instead of credit card whenever we can. The list of things we can do is long and everything on it makes a big impact. If the balance of power tilts too far away from the individual and enables powerful entities like governments or corporations to see completely into our lives, society could become a dark place. Thankfully, we are empowered individuals and we can make changes in our own lives to protect our privacy starting today. NBTV is funded by community donations. If you'd like to support our free educational content, please visit nbtv.media support and take a look at our book, Beginner's Introduction to Privacy, that also supports our channel. Don't forget to subscribe to the channel here and also on Library. It's important to us that our viewers have the option to watch us on platforms that better protect their privacy. Thank you so much for watching through till the end. Seeing as you stuck around till the end, I had a few people ask what the little statue is that I have here. It is a 3D printed mini created for a puzzle quest at the Hacker Conference ThoughtCon, which is another super fun conference that you might want to check out someday. I'm a Bitcoin fan and I'm